my name is Stephen, and I'm glad that you guys are here today. And if you're watching online for our first ever Madison Church Online service, we are glad that you're with us right now. Um, you ever have a really, really bad dream, and I'm not talking about the kind when someone's chasing you and you can't run or you can't scream. Those are horrible dreams. I'll give you that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about dreams that are so realistic and something bad happens that you wake up and you have to process it. You're like, oh, that was just a dream. That was just a dream? Yeah, that was just a dream. But you have like all the physical and emotional reactions as if something had just happened to you. Um, Freud, one of the first scientists when it comes to the field of psychology, he'd love this one that I've been having for the last few years. Okay, been having this reoccurring dream every so much, few months, and it's like it advances a little bit more every time. But um, I'm at college, uh, I'm an undergrad, and I'm late for class, or I miss class, or I never have my homework. And this stressed me out. I would wake up and be like, oh my gosh. And then when I would have this dream, I'd worry. I'm like, where, what is, what is my mind trying to tell me? Am I not prepared for something? Like, am I overwhelmed? What is going on? And, uh, you'll be happy to know that there was one dream recently in which I showed up to class on time with my homework and graduated. And so I was like, hopefully the dreams are over with. I hope there's not like a next phase. I hope that in this dream world, I don't pursue a master's degree or anything because undergrad was good enough. Um, but horrible dreams. Uh, yesterday, I went golfing in the morning uh, with our band leader, Rebecca, and she would want you to know that she beat me. It's an irrelevant detail, but I'm doing this for you. Um, I half expected an applause because you guys are rude, but I'm glad that you didn't. <laughs> Proved me wrong this morning. So we went golfing. Now, I have this really, really bad habit, and I'm just acknowledging that it's a bad habit, so don't condemn me. I'm, I'm, this is confession. Um, I have this really bad habit that when I go on a golf outing in the morning, um, I love to get a McDonald's breakfast afterwards. I mean, <laughs> and it's so bad for you on multiple levels, and I know it's bad, and I think about it the entire time I'm in the drive-thru line, and I ordered that bag bacon, egg, biscuit, and that hash brown. And I'm like, everything I am eating is bad for you. There's not one part of what I'm about to... I got orange juice yesterday. So it's probably good for me. But you know, it came out of like a dispenser, so I don't even know if it's real orange juice. But I eat this breakfast, and every time I know it's going to happen, I get home, and about 30 minutes after I eat, my body's like, oh, we're dying. We are dying. This is it. It's over. I start getting, I mean, like systems start shutting down as my body tries to process the McDonald's food. I just put it in no offense if you work at McDonald's or own a part of McDonald's, you know, but you could probably be a little bit healthier in that respect. But uh, so I do what I always do. And then I like, I, I slowly get up to my bed because if I'm going to die, I'd like my last 10 seconds on earth to be comfortable, comfortable. So I go to sleep and uh, I wake up and I had this terrible dream. I woke up that our church just wasn't a church anymore. Like, this wasn't happening. Like, we weren't friends anymore. We weren't gathering on Sundays anymore. It was just over. And uh, I was laying in bed, and I just, I was really heartbroken. Like, honestly, I'm just laying in bed, um, waking up from my food coma. My food poisoning, really, is probably more appropriate. But I'm laying there, I'm broke, and I'm, like, emotionally and physically reeling. And I'm like, it's not real. It's not real. I don't have to worry about it. You guys know what I'm talking about? You guys have those dreams. Something is so real. You got to talk yourself off the ledge. Um I think we all have. And so I think in that respect, we can all relate to each other. Now, if you've ever been through something like super traumatic or have lost a loved one, how I've heard it described is it's like a bad dream I can't wake up from. And those are the words people will use when somebody passes away or something bad happens. It's a bad dream that I can't 
wake up from. And in that respect, even if you haven't lost someone, even if you haven't gone through a traumatic experience, you can relate to somebody who has because when we lay in bed and we're like, it was just a dream, and we get out of bed and we move on with the rest of our lives, um, we know that there are people who, who can't. It's not an option because it's not a bad dream. It's real life. And I'm bringing all that up not to be a downer, um, not at all, but to say that God also has had a dream and that dream turned into a nightmare. And I know that that might sound extreme and that might you might say, well, are you saying my life is bad? And I'm not saying that your life is bad. You might have a really great life, but I'm saying that when we look at, into the biblical text and we see what God intended for every single person here in the world, people who used to be alive, people who will be alive, God had so much more intended for us. And in that sense, he had this dream that's turned into a bad dream. And I think that a lot of us can relate to God in the sense of, it's almost like I think he wants to wake up, or it's a bad dream that he just wants to wake up from, and it's not happening. And so um, we're starting this new series today called In the Beginning, which is where we're going to begin, in the very beginning of the Bible. And so if you want to use those blue Bibles or your smartphones, that's quite all right. We're going to go to Genesis 1-1. That's the first verse, the first chapter, the first book of your Bible. And it begins with, in the beginning. Now, while you're going there, I'll give you a couple little extras this morning. Um, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2, all of Genesis um, has kind of become uh, these verses and this content that scholars and scientists love to debate and almost pin science and faith against each other. And they'll use Genesis. They'll use these first few chapters of Genesis to pin the two against them. And I think that that's completely wrong. So I just want to state that right now. I think it's completely wrong. I think that faith and science are completely compatible. It is not mutually exclusive. You don't have to choose faith or science. You can have both. As a matter of fact, I think that Science informs faith, and I think that faith enriches science, if that makes sense. I think that together, faith and science give us a more, a fuller picture of the earth that we lived in. Science is studying the stuff that God created. So I don't think that we need to have this argument. We don't have to get pulled into this false dichotomy of either or. Science and faith are totally compatible. Um, a second point is, and this might be really relevant if you grew up in the church, um, so Genesis is not a science book. So if you're reading it through the lens of science, you're reading it in a way that the original author did not intend. Genesis is historical, writing about people, places, events. And in that light, we should read Genesis as a history book with theology, but it is absolutely not a science book. And to make things more complicated for you guys, you theology nerds, I'll just throw a wrench in there. Uh, Genesis chapter one is Hebrew poetry. So not only is this a dead, ancient language with no vowels, it's a poem. So good luck trying to figure out exactly what's going on in that text. It, it's You can give it a guess, but there's not one person in the room, scholar or otherwise, who can say definitively this is what's going to happen because there's just too many new uh, unknowns. Now, finally, I do have an opinion on all of these things. 
And if you want to go out with me sometime, we can drink some coffee and talk about those, but that's not what I'm going to get into today. But I do want to say that I know that there are people in the room who would believe in a young earth. That is to say that when you follow the biblical genealogies backwards, you'd say that the earth was really made in just a few days or a week and that it's only a few thousand years old. Uh, and I know that we have people in the room who would believe in old earth, which is to say that the earth is millions of years old. And now here's the thing, and the reason that I think that we can coexist in this community, even if the person sitting next to you disagrees, I think that there's a few things. One, we're all acknowledging that God is the creator of the universe, okay? That's the first thing. Whether you believe it happened in a week or over the course of millions of years, you believe God was the creator of the universe. The second thing is whether that was through the evolutionary process through his spirit or through six days or thousands of years, we believe that God's Holy Spirit has been working in and around us to get us to the point we are at right now. And so um, we could argue till we're blue in the face. I enjoy it. So that's why I said I'd love to meet with you and we can just fight about this and then be good friends afterwards. But um, for today's purposes, we're not going to talk about any of that. Okay. But if you do want more information about that, last February, we did a series called Who Needs God? And that's available on Spotify and YouTube. And I would encourage you to go back if you missed a part of that series and listen to it. And the premise of that series was we're not going to give you short Sunday school answers to your big adult problems. We're not going to give you faith-based answers to your fact-based questions. And to do that, it literally took us six weeks. As a matter of fact, I've been really thinking about it. I don't think we covered everything in six weeks. So there's going to be a Who Needs God sequel coming up next year uh, as we talk about more things that I think that we're all wondering. But um, for today, I want to talk about in the beginning. I want to talk about God's dream. And we see that in Genesis. And if you're at Genesis 1-1, the very first thing we learn in the beginning, the very next word is God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, we learn that God has been. God has always been there. That's really hard for you and I who have been born in the last, you know, let's say 100 years uh, to understand how someone or something can just always exist. It's one of the uncomfortable truths about faith. It's one of those things that you don't necessarily have the answer to, but that doesn't mean that it's not true. Uh, in the same way that people who are atheists would say, well, where did all of this something come from if we believe that at one point there was nothing? It, all humans are asking the same question, where did everything come from? And in our faith, we would say that God always was, and we know that that's uncomfortable. But we see that there's God, the Father, in Genesis 1-2, we see that the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. So now we see that there's God the Spirit. So we have God the Father and God the Spirit, and then in Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, what you may not know, and we get an advantage on the people who are very, reading this for the very first time, a little bit of one, is that we know that this is Jesus. That when God speaks, let there be light, that this is Jesus. In John 1, John says, uh, in the beginning, the word already existed and the word was with God and the word was God. That's what I'm saying. And we get the advantage of thousands of years later, John clarifies that for us. He says, yes, there's God, the father, God, the creator. There's God, the spirit, and there's also God, the word, and the word is the son. So right away in the beginning of the Bible, we see that God is three and one, and we call this in the church world the Trinity, and it is one of the most confusing and unique things about our faith. And now, let me uh, tell you why uh, I really like the concept of the Trinity, even though I'll be honest with you, I don't understand it real well. Uh, there's nothing in creation quite like it. 
There's nothing in creation quite like the Trinity. There's nothing that you can compare to and say our God is like this. And the reason that I like that is because it's different. Now, there are a lot of cultures and faiths that have a flood narrative. There was a flood and it flooded the whole world. And they have a creation narrative. You know, this is how everything that we see came to be. And here's how all the people got spread throughout the land. And here's how we got all those languages. And, and we have those in Genesis too. But what I love about this Trinity, the God that we serve, this three in one, there's nothing else in the universe like it. Now, I've heard some people try to compare it to like water. And they're like, well, you know, the, the Trinity is, is like the different forms of water. There's liquid, gas, and solid, you know, ice cube, gas, and, and just regular water. But that's uh, in the theology world. Let's get real deep for a second. That's called modalism. Okay, now come up for air. You don't need to know what modalism is. Essentially, it's one God who takes on three forms. That's not the God that we serve. We don't serve one God who is sometimes in heaven, sometimes Jesus, now the Holy Spirit, heaven's vacant. That'd be really confusing when we're talking about Jesus sitting next to the Father, wouldn't it? Like, he just flips back and forth talking to him. No, we have three gods in one. And it is, if you're like, man, this is really confusing. Good, you understand it because you are one in one. I am one in one. I am not three in one. You are not three in one. So it is very difficult for us to understand how can this be. But the coolest thing about this is that what we see right at the beginning is that God exists in community. Have you thought about it like that? God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. God exists in community, in relationship with himself. So right away what we see is that our God is a relational God. God is a God who wants to know you, and God is a God who wants to know me. And not because he's bored, not because he's looking for something to do, not because he was like, oh, I need something to do to waste, you know, the next few thousand years or a few million years. I'll, you know, this should be a fun little side project. But no, because God loves you. And actually, that's what John writes in his letter. He says, let me make it clear. Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So in the beginning, we have this God who's always existed, Father, Son, Spirit, Trinity, in relationship with each other. And John says here, let me break it down really easy for you. God is love. And I know that in 2019 in Madison, Wisconsin, in the United States of America, love and compassion is really trendy. That's good. And it should be. I'm glad it is. Of all of the things that could be like trending in the world. Compassion is a good one. And I know the, on the other extreme that maybe there's a lack of compassion in other places, but I think compassion is on the rise. But one of the things that we realize is since the beginning of the earth is that our God has always been compassionate. That's his essence. He is love. Love radiates to him, through him, and out of him. And if we don't love, John says we're without God which could be really convicting for a lot of us. And so it is right at the beginning, we find out a whole lot about God, including that God has a dream. We read in Genesis uh, 2-7 that God creates human beings. Out of everything he's created, he creates human beings in his image. He makes that distinction. He makes everything, and then he says, I'm going to make human beings, and they are going to be in my image. They're going to be different. Now, up until this point, this is kind of cool. Some of you will like this. Um, God creates a whole bunch of stuff. And what we read in the chapter one poem is that it is good. God creates you know, the sun and the moon. It is good. God creates the waters. It is good. God creates the animals. It is good. And God creates a man, and he says, this is not good. Uh, not that the man wasn't good, but he said, hey, the man is alone. 
The man is lonely. The man is isolated. God, who exists in community three in one, says, this is not good. The first time in creation that we hear the words not good come out of God's mouth is when he sees man lonely. Then he creates a woman, and he says, okay, all is better. And now all the women are like, yeah, see, look, we made the world back right again. Men screwed it up. God made it right. And, and that is how it reads. I mean, you could just read it yourself. And so God says, this is good. So then God has this dream. And what we see in these first few chapters of Genesis are that we have man and woman, and they're working. They're not not working. I think that sometimes we think of paradise, we think we're not working. No, you're not doing a job you hate, okay? But you're still working. You're doing stuff that you enjoy. And God is walking around with them. We just see that man and woman, there's, there's no pain or suffering in the world. They're just going throughout their lives, and God is with them. But they do have a choice. God didn't make you a robot. God doesn't have a, a cosmic reset button that when you do something that he doesn't like, he's just going to start over. But he has a choice. And what we see is that humans make the wrong choice. Humans make the selfish choice. And so in the beginning, um, we know that there's God. In the beginning, we know that God has a dream. And in the beginning, there is sin. Now, when we say the word sin, um, a lot of you might think of things that you shouldn't do. Like, these are the things I shouldn't do, and that is sin. And yes, sin includes some of those things, but it's also a shallow definition of sin. Sin would be better understood as the stuff that's separating you from God. All the stuff that's separating you from God. And his creation. So when you cut someone off in traffic or someone cuts you off in traffic, we could call that sin because that definitely didn't help your relationship with the person who you just cut off or just cut you off. Chances are you probably flashed a finger back at them and that furthered the gap. Now let's say you're ultra perfect and you never screw up. And I would say that you're probably not very emotionally intelligent if you think that. But let's say that that's who you are, okay? I guarantee that at some point in your life, you said something you didn't mean to. You lost your temper, or you were hurt, and the words came out of your mouth. You might not have even been thinking it. You don't even know where the words came from. They're just like, blah, 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 And you threw all of that out there, and now you have to live with the consequences. As a matter of fact, some of you know, and this is unfortunate, and I know this to be true, sometimes you say or do things that you didn't mean to. It really is an accident, but they have permanent consequences. They have permanent consequences. You drink and drive and get behind the wheel of a car and you're intoxicated and you hit someone and you kill someone or, or you hit someone and they're disabled the rest of their lives now. Okay, it doesn't matter how repentive you are. What's done is done. And again, and I know we're getting real serious, just like we did at the beginning. We're coming, but that's the weight of sin that I want every single person to feel this morning is that sin is the stuff that separates us from God's creation and from God. And sometimes I've even heard people say, well, I'm not hurting anyone else. What's the problem? Well, if you're hurting yourself, that's still sin. Even if you're not hurting, you're a hermit, and you, you're boarded up in your house, and you never, ever leave, so you could never possibly hurt someone. How's your relationship with God? And that's the most important relationship. I think that community is great. I think that the people around you are awesome. I love golfing even when Rebecca beats me. I love playing board games. I love doing all of those things and hanging out. But the most important relationship I have isn't with my sons, and it's not with my wife, but it's with God. And it's out of a healthy relationship with God that I'll have a healthy relationship with my wife, my kids, and my friends. Now, when I put that in a different order, that's when things get wonky. 
and kind of screwy. And that's when we see sin start to come in. And so sin isn't just the bad word, but it's we got to think bigger. How are we either getting closer to God or further from God? You see, God isn't static. God isn't just hanging out in one place. He's not just over there. And we just all got to walk to him up the mountain. God is constantly moving. Some of you guys know that. Some of you guys are really annoyed with that. Because just as soon as you think you figured out where God is, what he's doing, he's not there anymore. And then he's like over here around the corner. And so you're like, you're really frustrated. But God is saying, come on this journey with me. And the reason that God is moving is because he is restoring his dream. After people screwed up, brought sin in the world, pain, suffering, evil, hate, war, violence, everything that we just loathe in this world and it makes the world a, a sick place to live in at times, uh, God doesn't end things, shoot, <laughs> and just start over. Right away what we see is God pursuing people again. Now we get the benefit, again, of coming 2,000 years after Jesus don't we? Because we get to look back in hindsight and say, oh yeah, God definitely loves us. But there was an era in which people were actually looking forward to Jesus. We look back at Jesus, but there were generations after generations who were looking forward to a Messiah. When is God going to make the dream whole again? We see that, why would God do this? I mean, that's what I hope you're asking. Is like, why would God do that? Because if I was God, I'd probably just boop, reset it, you know, start over, delete account, open a new one. Uh, but that's not at all what we see God do. do. As, and John writes in 3.16, a Bible verse you're all very familiar with, uh, was that it says, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but we'll have eternal life. This is where the Trinity comes back into play. Remember, that's what we started with, the Trinity. We see that God has a mission to make things right, so he sends his son, Jesus. And Jesus lives the life that you and I should have lived. Jesus lives a life that is completely selfless. He serves people. He gives people in ways that they can't give back. He lives a relationally open life where people call him a friend of sinner. And in our society, don't we like to like put a little asterisk at the end of that? Like... When we go to the bar or maybe we're ministering at an event or something, we like to say, um, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. Have you guys ever heard that before? Love the sinner, hate the sin. And we try to do stuff like that. We put that caveat. Well, I love them, but I'm definitely not supporting their lifestyle. That one I hear all the time. Well, I'm not, you know, condoning anything. Jesus never felt like he needed to clarify that. We don't, I mean, like maybe if you wrote a gospel, you could write that. Jesus was a friend of sinners, parentheses, but he did not condone their behavior, end of parentheses. No, the gospel writers, the people who knew Jesus best, he said, this guy is a friend of sinners, period, moving on. And I think that that's amazing is that Jesus didn't feel the need to have to defend and justify the way that he loved and his, what we sing, his reckless love. He didn't feel like he needed to defend that and his friends didn't either. They wrestled with it. You can read on how they questioned Jesus about it. But what we look back at Jesus's life and we say, wow, he lived the life we should have lived completely selflessly. And he didn't feel like he needed to defend it the way that we do. Now it comes to the point where Jesus has to die. I mean, like he knows that that's the mission. Live the life we should have lived. Die the death we all deserve. And we read in John 14, John keeps writing. He says, but when the father said, quoting Jesus, but when the father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, 
He will teach you everything and remind you of everything I've told you. Aha, going back to the Trinity. This is important. God is working to fix the relationship with you and him. So he sends Jesus. Now, at some point, Jesus is going to accomplish the mission. He's going to live that life. He's going to die on the cross. And Jesus says, okay, now after I'm gone, it's not a run out the clock situation. Mm -mm, No, it's not. As a matter of fact, God is going to send someone else. And in this 14th chapter, Jesus says, it's actually better for you that I die because you can get the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but when Jesus says that like, it's better that he goes away so that I can get something, likely going to take him at his word at this point. And so he sends the Holy Spirit, which gets us to our role in restoring God's dream. Jesus dies, and he's resurrected. And that is so important. We cannot overlook the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Jesus was just a good dude who had a lot of good ideas, said a lot of good things, did a lot of good things, and then was killed for him like a lot of other good people were. But that he rose again, and that we have historical accounts of hundreds of people who saw him die and then saw him walking around later, that's empowering to our faith. That's the science and faith conversation again. But now Jesus says there's the Holy Spirit, and in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his followers, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the world, even Madison, Wisconsin. That's not in there. That's my text. But in the beginning, there's God. And God has a dream. And sin ruins this dream. And God pursues us to make it better. But then that's not where it ends. Jesus ascends into heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes. And the final part of in the beginning is you and me. Every single person in here has a mission. Where you live where you come from, where God is calling you next, where you go to work tomorrow, where you go to school next year, last year, this year. Are we making the most of those opportunities? Are we trying to restore God's dream for the world or just God's dream for me? Because there goes the selfish, selfish, selfless conversation again, right? Selfish, what's best for me? Selfless, what's best for the world? And as we try to be like Christ with the powering of the Holy Spirit, we need to look around and we say, how am I making the world a better place? How am I helping restore God's dream? A few ideas for you. Ideas that we just talk about constantly at Madison Church, and I'm going to keep talking about it because I know that it works. Now, there are a hundred things you could do to try to be a good person, right? And I'm going to suggest there's one thing you could do to make you effective at the mission of God, and that is to give back. And again, we talk about this a lot. And if you're tired of hearing me talk about it, that's awesome. Let's do something about it. We want to give generously. We want to give our money. The money is the thing that as Americans is closest to our heart. I don't know a lot of people that make every decision based on what Jesus would do. I know a lot of people who make a lot of decisions based on what their checkbook says, based on how big that check is going to be on Friday, right? We give generously because God gave generously first. We give generously because we could never repay God back for the gift that he gave us himself, so we could have eternal life. So when we give, it's not just about five bucks or 500 bucks or whatever it is. When we give, it's about honoring God with our finances and saying, I'm giving back to you what oftentimes is most precious 
to us. Now, I know none of you would say that money is more important than your kids or your wife or your family. I get all that. I'm not accusing you of anything. But I think that after just a very few examples of kids and families, I think money ranks right up there as one of the most important things in our lives. Um, I think we need to volunteer. We need to serve the world the way that Jesus served us. And that means we serve people without ever expecting to get paid back, without ever expecting to get recognition, because that's selfless. And we need to serve in that capacity. Now, I'm not saying burn yourself out. I always feel like I got to explain that. I'm like, because I know that there's some people who hear that, volunteer and serve, and they get fired up, and they're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And in six months, they're burned out, and they hate God, and they hate me, and they hate this church. And um, it's happened before. It's going to happen again. So I want you to know I'm not saying that. I'm saying find a healthy rhythm in your life of giving and taking so that way you can always put out a little bit and serve people without expecting to ever get paid back because there's no way that we could pay Jesus back the way that he served us. And finally, it's not just good enough to live a good life. If it was, the Gospels would be four tweets. Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose. The end. But the Gospels are full of stories of Jesus preaching God had a dream. And sin entered the world. And God's been restoring that dream. And now you get to play a part in that dream. And that's what we need to do when we go out into the world. We can't just write checks on Sunday. We can't just volunteer every now and then. But are we living those relationally open lives the way that Jesus did? Are we telling people about in the beginning, God loves you so much? I'm not saying get into theology arguments with your coworkers or anything, but I'm saying, do they know that God loves them, that God has been pursuing them, and that you are an agent now? All of you are here because somebody else took that responsibility seriously. I'm here because somebody took that responsibility seriously. That, oh, God has a mission. I'm going to reach out to people. Who could be sitting in these seats? Who could be at another church somewhere else, around the world, anywhere, because of the way that you live, because of the weight of the world and that sin and that darkness and emptiness that we can feel impressed on our spirits? Will we give back? It's easy to talk about. It's easy to talk about volunteering. It's easy to talk about giving. Nobody in here wants to say I'm selfish and greedy. Nobody. I doubt it. We would all like to think of ourselves as generous and selfless people. Well, are, are we doing it? And can you be critical with yourself and honest enough with yourself where you can look inward and say, maybe I can grow. Maybe I should finally tell my neighbor God loves them. Maybe I should give to my full capacity. Maybe I need to start volunteering, even though I'm already super busy and I'm going to have to quit something I really like doing so I can serve like Jesus served me? Those are the questions that only you can answer this morning. I want to present it to you, and as we're going to be talking about the next two weeks in this series. This is the premise, this is the foundation of the series, and we're going to move forward talking about in the beginning, how do we help restore God's world? It's going to take every single person in this room, but we can do it. We can restore God's dream. Will you guys pray with me?